0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information, or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. This is the Word of God. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. You shall eat the fruit of your labor of your hands, You shall be blessed, and it should be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, and your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, we praise you for these sacred moments. These moments as your people gather and they sit in anticipation of hearing from you, the living God. So Father, again, as we prepare to approach your word, we pray that you would sharpen our minds, that you would heighten our affections, that you would help us to approach this word rightly and to be changed. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let us go to his word together. Stand, please. We continue on in the first chapter of Ephesians, reading this blessed section from verse 3 down through verse 14. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. You should receive it as such. Amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray, amen. So I would hope that if you were to ask any member of this faith family above the age of 10, perhaps even a little bit younger than that, but if you were to ask them, What is the most important thing in all the world? Why do we exist? I am confident that you would hear something about God's supreme passion for his own glory. Perhaps in the words of the Westminster Divines, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is the driving force. This is the heartbeat of this church. Every worship service, every Bible study, every counseling session, I pray every personal conversation that we have, that they are all aimed ultimately at beholding and at celebrating the majesty and beauty and worth of God. But how do we know that we're being pointed in the right direction? How can we be sure that we're not being indoctrinated by the wrong things? Now, don't flinch at that word, indoctrination. It just means to systematically instruct someone in a particular doctrine. Beloved, we're all being indoctrinated. One way or another, I promise you this world is working hard online, in the media, in schools, with the laws that they pass, in the way that this world is seeking to train you to think and to speak and to live. I promise you this world is working hard to indoctrinate your entire family. So the question isn't, will I be indoctrinated? The question is, with what am I being indoctrinated? What is going to fill my ears and consume my mind? What is going to shape my affections, to guide my thoughts, to inform my conscience? Now, please don't miss this. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul will talk about spiritually dead men following the course of this world. I have often compared it to a lazy river doesn't take much effort. You don't have to work that hard. It's just a whole of humanity moving one direction altogether. Now, they think that they're free. That's the funny thing about these men. They think that they're original. They think that they're clever. They think that they're different than all the rest. But the reality is that they're slaves, following the ordinary path, the ordinary course of fallen men, all the while being enticed to believe the lies of the enemy, that something in this world other than God can bring them true joy and lasting pleasure. But we are called to something very, very different. Called to something much more per- purposeful. It requires aim. It requires intent. Romans 12:2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or in Ephesians 6, 4, we'll read, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Constant training. Unending reformation. This is what is required of the child of God. It's what is required of the Christian. So, yes, I am trying to indoctrinate you and your children. I make no secret about this whatsoever. I've literally devoted the entirety of my life to systematically instructing men, praying, praying, that by the Spirit of God, they might reject the broken pattern of this world and then charge hard at the eternal weight of glory. See, I I officiated a, uh, got to officiate a beautiful wedding here on Friday night. And on the way home, and on the way home, Allie observed, she said, you know, Dad, whenever you say certain words, whenever you say certain things, I immediately know what's coming next. Now, the reality is, Allie has never seen me officiate a wedding before. That's Andrew's job. Andrew's the wedding guy around here. He does all of them. I do none. So she had never seen me officiate a wedding before, but Allie's picked up on the pattern. She knows my patterns of speech. She knows what I'm going. She knows the drumbeat of my ministry. And so I told her, I said, sweetie, that's absolutely on purpose. Anytime I speak, no matter where I am, whether it's a worship service or a counseling session or a funeral or even in a wedding, I view my job as one singular thing, to point eyes and hearts towards the glory of God in Christ Jesus, trusting that for those who are his, he will send his spirit, they will see Christ, and they will be blessed. Sorry, the one week I don't bring my cup up here. So the reality is that there's nothing new. There's nothing catchy. There's nothing clever. I'm not trying to catch you off guard. I'm trying to raise my hand, look you at the eye, and say, this is my goal. This is my hope. I hope you pick up on my patterns. I hope you hear the repetition. I hope those words resound in your heart and in your mind over and over and over again. The same truths that the church has held to for 2,000 years that day after day, week after week, you would hear the same truth. And again, I tell you, I'm telling you what I'm doing. You see, unlike the enemy, unlike the world around you, we announce our intentions. We want you to see and believe that the true and living God is sovereignly exercising his providential control over all things, including the salvation of his people for the express purpose that he might make his glory known. That we plead you to trust in this, to see it. And whether we stand in a place like this, just because I'm standing behind a podium or just because I'm preaching from a pulpit, we plead with you, don't believe what I say just because I say it. Dig for yourself. Make certain that the words I'm speaking to you are actually true. Make sure that the one that you're sitting under is actually delivering to you the faithful word of God. And so, that's what we aim to do in this place. We're indoctrinating. And my trust is that if you'll do what I've asked you to do. Sorry, I've used my voice a lot this week. The reality is, if you will do what we have asked you to do, you will find that we in no way exaggerate. That we in no way overstate the truth that God's ultimate passion and his greatest glory is for the display His ultimate passion, his greatest zeal, is for the display of his own glory. As Paul will say here in verse 6, that God has chosen us in Christ. He has set us apart to himself as holy saints. He has predestined us for adoption as sons to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now we have spent our last three Lord's Days together seeking to see the way in which God has accomplished this plan which he has purposed before the foundation of the world. That in order to make this glory known that Christ Jesus, the son of God, he came to reveal that glory to us in the giving of his life, that in taking upon himself flesh, that living as a man under the law, that taking upon himself the curse of the law, the sins of his people, drinking down the cup of his father's wrath, he would win for himself a people, a chosen people who had been set apart by God from before the foundation of the world, that we would be cleansed and set free that we have been reconciled to God and welcomed into his family, not as slaves, but as sons. And so what Paul says here at the end of verse 7 is that all of this has been accomplished according to the riches of God's grace. Now, grace, I remind you, is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is an undeserved gift. No one in all the world deserves anything from God other than death and eternal punishment. We've earned nothing but wrath, even the Christian Even after conversion, even as we have been joined to Christ, there is never a point, even in eternity, when a man can raise his hand and say, God, you owe me your favor. God, I have earned your blessing. That even there, we will always be men under grace. That everything we receive, any goodness from the hand of God, it all comes as an undeserved gift from him. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that to try and earn the favor of God is extremely offensive to him. And so grace, it is that attribute that quality of God that inclines him to freely give to undeserved sinners that which they do not deserve. But even beyond this, we know that more than just a disposition of God, more than just well wishes or, or warm intentions, that grace is also the power of God by which he pours those blessings into our lives. Consider 2 Corinthians twelve nine. Paul has just been talking about the thorn in his flesh. but He reveals that God has said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Or Ephesians two eight, he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Do you see this? The grace is not just an inclination of God to bless sinners, but it's also the activity by which those blessings become ours. And so in the case of the world, we know that they gladly receive these gifts of common grace from God. The breath of air in their lungs, the fact that this earth continues to rotate in its In his proper orbit around the sun the fact that the air hasn't become poison the fact that gravity continues to hold us to the ground that at every moment Every single man that lives on this earth. They owe their continued existence to the hand of God And yet scripture tells us that they refuse to thank him Now this is no trivial matter because Romans 2 4 says that they have presumed on the riches of God's kindness And forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead men to repentance But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The grace which God has poured into the life of these reprobate, the the grace which God has poured into the lives of men who reject and despise him, it will stand against them in that final day in judgment. They have received freely from the hand of God, all the while ignoring and despising him. This is why we must be very careful in the way in which we speak about God's good gifts. We must never give the impression that they can be something that is separated away from God himself. When we speak about the grace of God, when we speak about means of grace, when we speak about prayer or study or communion or worship, we must take great care that we recognize that what we are receiving in that moment is not something but someone. For God is love and God is truth and God is wisdom and all that we need comes to us by God in Christ. That what we come to receive is a person We don't tell people to come and receive grace. We tell them to come and receive Christ Jesus as Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? Whenever we come together to the Lord's table, whenever you're invited to come here and take Christ's body, which has been given for you, and his blood, which has been spilled for you, what he offers you is not some external thing called grace. It is by grace that Christ Jesus here at this table offers you himself. It is he that comes to reside within you, not just his gifts. It is in him, in Christ Jesus, that we receive all that God has for his people. For the God of the universe, for you to be his people and he to be your God, is for him to come to you in Christ Jesus and be your all in all. That this is the true picture, the true essence of saving grace. The Apostle Paul tells us here at the end of verse 7 that God is rich in this grace. He says, God has redeemed us in Christ according to the riches of his grace. Now that word riches it means exactly what it looks like. It's a super abundance In the case of God, it's a never-ending storehouse You see if the grace of God can be thought about God giving himself to us in Christ Jesus Then of course God is rich in his grace because God is infinite God never runs out of himself to give us As I was thinking through this this week I couldn't help but have my mind drawn to some of you young mothers you come to the end of the day and you're exhausted and completely burnt out. You've had babies hanging all over your body all day long. The mountain of laundry doesn't seem to be going anywhere. You don't have a personal chef to come in and prepare a meal for your family. And then your husband comes home and he rightly wants some time with you. And how often do those, those young mothers want to scream from the mountaintops, I don't have any more of myself to give. Beloved, this is never, ever ever the case with god you can never exhaust the grace of god there is no shortage there is no running out there is no fatigue in the person of god you can never exhaust the riches of god's infinite grace i want you to think about the prodigal son what you think about this man is he came to himself this young man he was willing to return home and serve in his father's house as a hired hand He knew that he deserved nothing, that even to settle for the scraps from his father's table would have been an incredible gift of grace. Now, previously, we know that this son, he had received, he had even demanded that his father give him his inheritance. The son had gone out and completely wasted it. He had completely squandered all that his father had given him on sinful and stupid things. And so he knew even in his repentance that it would be an act of mercy if his father wouldn't strike his face and turn him away. But instead, we read Luke fifteen twenty. But while he was still a long way off, his father said to him, excuse me, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead He is alive again. He was lost and he is found. I think this is the picture. There's always more God's riches are never exhausted His goodness never runs out even in eternity. There's always more of god to give That his capacity for grace is always more than our ability to sin It's always more than our ability to run but the truly astonishing thing isn't just that this father has a riches, is rich in grace. It isn't just that he has infinite grace to bestow. It's that he gives it to us at all. But it doesn't just say that he gives it to us. Verse 8 says that he lavishes it upon us. Don't miss this. This prodigal son, he returned home. The father didn't merely open the door and let him in. He, this man ran and he showered his son with kisses. He received him with joy and with celebration. As he shouts out to his servant, get the best robe. Get the finest ring. Get the fattest calf. You see, he opens up his storehouses. All that this father had were free to be given to his son. He lavished him with grace. He lavished him with goodness. Beloved, this is the way that God gives, always, never begrudgingly, never stingily. This God, he is always giving radically and liberally and abundantly to his children. And if you could see this, I want you to see how drastically this would alter the way that you would approach God. You see, what was the lie of the enemy in the garden? Adam and Eve had been lavished with the goodness of God. Everything they could ever need in this garden, food in abundance, a helpmate to live with, a job to do that was a joy, the very presence of God dwelling with them. And yet, what was the lie of the serpent on that day? God's withholding goodness from you. God is stingy in his giving of goodness. See, he's withheld this one tree from you, and this is the one that you really want. But beloved, children of God, if we would recognize that God always gives in abundance, he lavishes his grace upon us, and that that grace will never run out. I don't have to be worried about the grace that he gives to you, thinking somehow that you are taking my inheritance. But that from the abundance of God's grace, he gives, he gives lavishly. He gives us in abundance. That We would approach him much differently. The greater sense of trust and joy. I want you to remember then the way that I've talked to you about how I understand eternity to play out. The reason that I believe that God says that he must give us powerful spiritual bodies for eternity. Because these frail and broken and busted bodies we have, they cannot bear up under the weight of eternal glory. The riches of God's glory, when that day comes when we are no longer clouded by sin. When we see him as he is and we become like he is, when we find ourselves standing upon the, underneath the fount of his endless blessing, it will be in that moment that we will praise God that he has given us powerful, honorable, spiritual bodies that can bear up under the weight of the joy, of the pleasures, of the blessings that he gives us in that moment for all eternity. That's what eternity is. Just more and more and more of God giving himself over to us. So that for all eternity, our capacity to receive that joy is just greater and greater and greater. But what paul is telling us here is that even now he is lavishing this upon us that we don't have to wait for eternity as wonderful as that will be because if you look just right across the page to chapter 2 he says in verse 4 but god being rich in mercy he's talked about these spiritually dead men these men who go along the lazy river of life thinking themselves free he says but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with christ by grace You have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why has God made us alive? Why has God saved us by grace? Why has God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places? As I told you in my introduction the immediate answer the most ultimate answer is to the praise of the glory of his grace But what about for us? How does this play out for us? Well, he says verse 7 So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable riches of God's grace. That's what he's preparing you for. That's why he has raised you up. That's why he has seated you even now in the heavenly places so that the immeasurable riches of God's grace might be lavished upon you for all eternity. Beloved, you're not the center of heaven. You know this. It is God and his glory that continues to be the center of all things, even in eternity, in the new heavens and the new earth. And yet he has said in grace, his purpose in that moment is to lavish his goodness upon you, to overwhelm you with his goodness, to swarm you with his goodness, to create in you something new with a greater capacity to receive his goodness in and of yourself. Do you see the way that the glory of God and the good things in your life are always working side by side? But again, Paul says that this superabundance of God's goodness, this lavishing of his grace, it is ours even now. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now we need to try and figure out what to do with those words, in all wisdom and insight we got to figure out what's Paul talking about here. Is Paul saying that God's decision to lavish his grace upon us, that it is done in accordance with his wisdom and his insight? Now, this is one of the downsides to having these verse breaks in here. You see that little bitty number nine, that superscript number nine there, and it almost seems to demand that we understand this wisdom and insight as being in reference to the subject of that proposition, namely God and his lavishing of grace. And that may well be the proper interpretation. We know that God's wisdom is beyond all comprehension. We know that God doesn't do anything capriciously or thoughtlessly, that God is wise. Proverbs 3.19 says that the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. God is absolute wisdom. Wisdom isn't something that God has. It is what he is. Wisdom originates from the very nature of God. But if we consider the context of this verse right here, we realize that what Paul is speaking to us about is not essentially the nature of God but how the nature of God has come to play out in our life. How God in his nature has expressed his goodness towards his people. Because he's talking here about lavishing us with the riches of his grace. He's talking about being made known to us the mystery of his will. So I won't fight you over it. I don't think that it in any way really alters the meaning of the text to say that he is talking about God's wisdom and God's insight. But it seems to me, based on the context, based on the whole thrust of this passage, that he's talking about a wisdom and an insight that has been given by God to his children. So if that's the case, then you might paraphrase this whole section like this. God has lavished his grace upon us. This grace is realized not only in being chosen by God, not only in being predestined as sons, not only in being forgiven our sins, but in his giving us all the wisdom and insight necessary that we might know the mystery of his will. Now, this would seem to match up with Paul's prayer that we touched on last week, just down the page a bit, verse 16, where he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, and of revelation of the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. In the parallel of that verse in Colossians, Colossians 1.9, he says that he is asking that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So it seems to me that what Paul is saying here is as an act of extravagant uh, grace. That from the overabundance of God's grace, he has given us this in- extraordinary gift and that that gift is seen in giving us wisdom and insight. Now, the Greek word for wisdom, it's, it's the word Sophia. As best I know, I think we only have one little Sophia in this church, right? We have one Sophie and one Sophia, right? The name means wisdom. Did you know that? Y'all know that when you pick the name? Little girls know that kind of thing, right? I wanted to, I wanted to name, I shouldn't say it because one of y'all might have the name. There's a name that means ill-fortunate one. That's why I wanted to name Annie. Man I said, you can't name a little girl ill-fortunate one. That doesn't work. I said, whoever looks up the meaning of their name, he said, little girls do, I promise. But it means Sophia. It means wisdom. 51 times that Greek word is used in the New Testament. And every time in the ESV, it's translated wisdom. Now, wisdom, it seems to carry this idea of, of a broad understanding. This isn't some specific area of knowledge. This is the ability to comprehend the world around us. We read in Proverbs 9 that fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. That when we properly fear God, that is the lens then through which we will understand all the world around us. Everything that comes at us, it will be run through the filter of we fear God. That this is the picture of wisdom. James 3.17 says that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, and gentle, and open to reason, and full of mercy, and good fruits, and impartial, and sincere. The wisdom is not merely intellectual, it permeates our entire life. It changes not just the way that we receive the information that is coming back to us, but the way that we respond to it, the way that we treat others, the way that we respond to those whom God has placed in our life. Now the word insight in Ephesians, it can also be translated as understanding or prudence. So some commentators in my studies this week, I found that they would see this this insight or, or prudence as the way in which a wise man responds to the world around him. That this is more of a, a practical application of wisdom. That wisdom is knowing that we should do all that we can to preserve our life, that, but that inside or prudence is knowing I must run whenever a lion comes my direction. But I, I don't think that the Bible will allow us to make this kind of a distinction. It seems to me that these are, these are parallel words. They're not identical. They're not completely synonymous. But they're used to point to the same idea. We see this in Proverbs 16, 16, where he says, How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Whenever Jewish poetry speaks in these parallel terms, most often we're to see these things is very, very similar at least. And what the author of this proverb is saying is that there's a preciousness, more precious than silver, more precious than gold, is understanding, is wisdom, that they're to be desired and, and to be pursued and to be cherished. Now Paul knows that true wisdom, that enduring insight, that it comes only from God. He's saying here that it's a gift of God to his people, as we will see later, is a gift of God to his people that comes by the Spirit of God. So I would invite you, I don't think my voice is going to hold up, so I would invite you sometime this afternoon to go through and read the first two chapters of First uh, Corinthians. What you will find there is the Apostle Paul, he is comparing worldly wisdom to godly wisdom. What passes for wisdom in this world versus the wisdom, the true wisdom that comes from above? And Paul makes clear that he has not come to speak with lofty words or elegant, uh, or elegant speech. That, that he has come to, in fact, he says that the gospel that he has revealed, that it is, it's going to be counted as, as foolishness to the world. But instead, God has come to reveal the worthlessness of worldly wisdom. He reads and he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, that what Paul comes to impart is a secret and a hidden wisdom of God. He says that this glorious truth, though, it'll be a stumbling block. It'll be foolishness to those who call themselves wise. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So he's saying that those who count themselves as wise in the world, those who are lifted up as the powerful speakers and the great intellects of this day. That because of their spiritual state, they're completely unable to receive, unable to know, unable to understand this hidden wisdom that Paul comes to impart. But all hope is not lost because he says in 1 Corinthians 2.12 that we have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by him. This is so fundamental. You will never rejoice in the gift of wisdom unless you get this. You'll never comprehend the wonder of God's amazing grace towards you and giving you insight if you don't get this You will never value the knowledge of God given to you by his spirit if you don't get this If You don't see what Paul is saying here. He is saying that true wisdom that real understanding not just wisdom and understanding about the world around you But about the things of God about the mystery of God's will that it comes only through the working of God never through the working and willing of man That God looks to the wise of this world. He looks to those who are held up as the intellect in this world. And he says, I will destroy your wisdom. I will thwart your discernment. I will show you how foolish you really are. As a matter of fact, whatever you have, I will take away. But to those he has chosen, to those whom he has called, not to the wise according to this world, not to the powerful, not to the honorable according to this world, but to the foolish and the weak and the lowly and the despised, he says, I will reveal the mystery of my will. I want you to think about the time of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 11, he's just spoken curses upon uh, Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum. Capernaum is a very lofty city. You remember that there they had seen many of Jesus' mighty works. They had heard much of his teaching, and they believed themselves to be the most prominent and the best and the most spiritual because of all the things that they had seen, apparently. So Jesus says this. he's, He's spoken woes over them, and then he turns to the Father, and he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, will, that an act of judgment upon their arrogance is a show of judgment upon their haughtiness, that God has hidden from them those things which might have led them to repentance. He has hidden from them those things which might have led them to understand the mystery of his will. But to the lowly, to the meek, to the humble, to the childlike, he has revealed it. It's an act of judgment upon pride, he hides. It's a good gift of grace to the meek, he reveals. We see the same truth talking about, talked about by Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 10. The disciples came to him and said, Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, many people, they tend to think that Jesus only spoke in parables for one purpose, and that was to reveal. To make hard things to understand easier for the crowd to understand. I think that's perhaps why so many preachers insist on using almost exclusively stories when they preach. They think that it makes them more like Jesus. Now the reality is that parables are an effective tool for making hard things to understand much more practical to their audience. To speaking to people right where they are. But listen to what Jesus says. Verse 11. Jesus answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So he's saying, I've given these things that I may hide the things of the kingdom of God from them. But it's a blessing down in verse 16. He says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. Do you understand that Jesus taught in parables and for the sake of his for those who see For those who have been given eyes to see he says that this will reveal what has been hidden the things the hidden things From before the foundation of the world that through these parables they will receive more a greater understanding They look back to the prophets of the Old Testament The things that the prophets of the Old Testament longed to see and he says I am unfolding them for you before your eyes as I teach you even now But even as these other men they stood these who had hardened hearts These who refused to see Christ Jesus as the king who had been promised, the king who was coming to usher in the kingdom. He says, even to them, these things are being hidden. Now, they understood the message that Jesus was speaking intellectually. As a matter of fact, at the surface level, everyone standing there would have understood it. He was talking about things like seeds and soil and and vineyards and, and sheep and things that they would have understood, very practical stories. And he would speak to these big crowds, and at the end of these parables, he would always ask them some very obvious question. He'd say something like, So these wicked men, they kill the vineyard owner's son. What do you think will happen to these men? And everybody in the crowd, they immediately know the answer. They immediately know what's going to happen to these people. But the reality is the story wasn't about a vineyard, ultimately. The story isn't about sheep, ultimately. The story is about the kingdom of God. But Jesus didn't hide that either because he would begin his parables by saying, the kingdom of God is like. So they knew this wasn't just a story about sheep. They knew that this was a story about the kingdom of God. But the reality is they couldn't see the truth in this. As Jesus would say back in John 3, that unless a man is born again of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So these men who thought themselves to be the keepers of the kingdom of God, they would hear these stories, they would hear the parable, they knew it wasn't about a sheep, they knew it wasn't about a vineyard, they knew it wasn't about soil, and so they would nod their head thinking themselves wise and say, yes, I see, you're pointing to the kingdom of God, which is surely ours, because God loves us because we're the smart people. And all the while what was happening is, even the wisdom that they had was being taken away. As this, this truth was coming to them, they would find that in the end, their own loftiness, their own intellect, their own might, their own wisdom, it was only serving to further harden them. That as Jesus would come, he would reveal to them this moral blindness. This wasn't an intellectual blindness. They were smart men. This certainly wasn't a physical blindness. But as this moral blindness was revealed, as they revealed that they were those who hated the light, as Christ Jesus came to light into the world, they revealed that they hated the light. As the light got closer, what would they do? They would shut their eyes tighter. And Christ would continually hand them over to it more and more and more. So at these same parables, which served to reveal the kingdom of God to his people, it would conceal it from those who had these hardened hearts. Jesus would say in John 8, 45, that because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. You notice he doesn't say, although I tell you the truth, you do not believe. He says, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. That in the pre- presentation of the truth, he is revealing these men's hearts He's revealing their hardened hearts. He is pushing them further into this hardened heart as they push back against him. And so then we must see what an incredible gift of grace this is for God to grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. As he says here in Ephesians, that he would give us, by his grace, wisdom and insight to come to truly understand. We would behold the mystery of God. Same preaching, same teaching. That's why men can sit in a room like this. They can hear the same preaching from the same man. They can hear the same scripture. They can participate in the same prayers. They can sing the same songs. One man walks out of here completely changed by what he's seen. Another man walks out of here further hardened in his inability, his moral inability to receive the things of the kingdom of God. So I want you to see what this means for us practically as we think about this gift of wisdom, this gift of insight, We think about the gift that God has given us in the coming of his spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to understand this mystery of his kingdom. We'll talk next week about what that mystery is. Firstly, it means that we should never take wisdom and insight lightly. These are gifts from God. In a world that has become so addicted to emotions and feelings, where churches have rejected the teaching of doctrine in exchange for just entertainment and stories and jokes, when so many men have exchanged this true study of God's word for just light daily devotions and little fortune cookie theology, we must see and embrace that insight is an unbelievable gift from God. We must pray for wisdom. We must cherish discernment. We must devote our lives to gaining more of this knowledge of the kingdom of God. As James says, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without a repro- reproach. And it will be given to him. Secondly, we must understand this wisdom does not come from anything that this world has to offer. We don't turn to the world for this kind of godly wisdom. We don't allow the world to speak into us what kind of insight we should have when we approach the word of God. That this wisdom, that this insight, it comes as a gift of God to the children of God by the spirit of God. Therefore, when we are those who are preaching and teaching, when we're seeking to give this mystery to the world that we then just rely on nothing more than the straightforward teaching of this word, knowing that many will reject it, but that a few, that those whom God has set apart, those who he has called, that by his grace they will see, they will hear, and they will believe, while the vast majority will nod their heads. Listen, the gospel is not a hard message to understand intellectually. I can explain the cross to a five-year-old in a way that they can get it. I can explain the cross to a five-year-old in a way that they will follow me in some prayer. They will nod their heads, and they will believe that they get it. But it's only those whom the Spirit of God has come and given eyes to see that will truly embrace this message. They will truly reveal that they understand the mystery of God's will. And so it's our job simply to just keep putting it out there. We we fight hard to avoid any confusion. We fight hard to get out of the way. The thing that frustrates me so much about this message is I'm going to beat myself up all week because my coughing is a distraction. Because I'm in my own head, and I'm bumbling over my words. Not because I want you to think that I'm a good speaker. Not because this is some kind of a performance, because I view my role as your pastor. This is the way I think about it. I'm just revealing my heart to you here. What do I work at as a preacher most? Of course, obviously, I'm studying God's word and I'm praying and I'm asking him to show me more of himself so that I can come and then hold this up before your eyes. But with regards to the way that I stand in this place and preach, I am desperately praying, God help me that there be nothing in my tone, nothing in my dress, nothing in my cadence nothing in my face that distracts from this word. So that you people will come into this place having seen the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, having no remembrance of who the guy was standing behind the pulpit. So that if and when the day comes that God calls me away, if and when the day comes that I drop dead, if and when the day comes that y'all run me off, you just plug the next dude into this place and nothing changes. So what's frustrating for me on a week like this is I'm up and down, I'm getting drinks, and I'm coughing, and I'm distracting, and I hate that. But I need you to understand, that's your same job as you leave this place and you seek to share the gospel in your home and at the ball field and at your workplace. Your job is just to take the gospel, to place it before men, not knowing whether they're blind or whether they can see. Not knowing whether God has done this work to soften their hearts, to give them the wisdom and the insight to understand the mystery of God's will. It's your job just continually to hold it before their face and then get the heck out of the way, knowing that it's not up to you. It's not up to you. You can't make sure that they understand. You can't impart to them this wisdom. You can't give them the eyes to see. All you can do is just keep giving it before them. I view it a little bit like trying to build a fire. What we do is we lay the wood straight, provide the kindling underneath, make sure there's a room for airflow. Maybe we put some rocks around the outside to give it a boundary for that fire, but we can't provide the spark. We can't provide the fire. We must call down that fire from heaven. So we pray, God, I have laid the fuel down. I'm asking you now. I presented the word to these people. I'm asking you now by the power of your spirit to start the fire, to do what only you can do to cause these people to have the wisdom and the insight that they would come to understand the mystery of your will. Again, I tell you, knowing that many will reject it. The vast majority, perhaps, they will reject it. They will nod their heads. They will shout amen. Then they will walk away completely unchanged. They will see beyond the story about sheep and vineyards and seeds and soils. They will know that you're talking about the kingdom of God. You'll know that, they're talking, that you're talking about a mystery with regards to God's will. But if God does not give them these eyes to see and ears to hear and the wisdom necessary to understand his will, they will walk away completely unchanged, having completely missed the point in all of it. And so because of that, the pressure is completely off. Again, I tell you you just continue to hold it before their eyes and pray that god would do the thing that only he could do But this isn't just the case when you're speaking outwardly This isn't just the case when you're evangelizing or discipling others. This is the case with your own studies. Do you understand? As you approach god's word on your own you recognize that what i'm doing here is a spiritual activity What i'm doing here is a thing that's completely dependent upon the work of god That there is no wisdom and insight that allow me to understand this word unless god is the one who works So we praise God that in your studies your ability to see the face of God your ability to grow in the grace of God Your ability to understand the mystery of God's will it is in no way dependent upon the power of your intellect Praise God for this Listen, God has made some men tall and some men short He's made some men handsome. He's made some men ugly He's given some men powerful computers in their mind. Just just brains that run fast. You can understand difficult things Immediately, somebody can bring a problem to you, and your mind immediately goes, I know the answer, without much effort at all. But then there are others. You just don't have that gift. Your brain runs slower. Reading is harder. Studying can feel like a chore. But we (laughs) praise God that your ability to understand the mystery of his will is in no way tied to your earthly intellect. It's in no way tied to the power of your brain. That every single one who has the Spirit of God, he has promised here in his word that as a lavish gift of grace. He has given you all wisdom and insight that you might know the mystery of his will. Do you understand what a gift this is? So that no one can say, I cannot understand this word. No one can say, I cannot come to this word and see what God is seeking to show me. I want you to think about how sad that would be. But you have a child, and the doctor comes to you. They've run some tests, and they said, look, his intellect is very, very, very limited. Well, I guess he's destined for hell. But the God of the universe says, no. It's not tied to earthly intellect. It's not tied to the power of the preacher. It's not tied to your ability to persuade. It's by the Spirit, that the Spirit of God will give to his children all wisdom and all insight necessary to know my will. Do you see what a blessing this is? You see how much this frees you up but at the same time you see how this requires of us that we cannot be lazy No, man can then say, you know, i'm just not a very good reader. So i'm not going to spend time in the word I'm, just not a very good under my brain just doesn't work in those terms And so i'm never going to understand the deeper things of god. He says no You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit when you speak like this. He's saying a gift from God is going to come. That's not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's not the unforgivable sin. Strike that, reverse it. He's saying, but you're you're speaking wrong about the work of God when you say that he has given me his spirit. His spirit's at work within me, but because of my physical limits, because of my mental inability, I can't understand the things of God. He says no. And so we must be the people who devote ourselves day after day, week after week, month after month, to continually coming and placing before our eyes the truth of God, knowing that by the Spirit of God, he will cause us to see and to know and to understand all that we need to know to get his will. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. God, I thank you for the promise that by your Spirit, you would cause us to see and to know and to understand the mystery of your will. Father, I thank you that our ability to know you, to rightly grasp the gospel, to walk in personal holiness, holiness is in no way tied to the power of man or the persuasion of a preacher or to the speed of the computer in our heads. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people who loves wisdom, who delights in insight, who, chal- who cherishes the knowledge that you have granted to us. And then, Father, we'd be a people that press hard after that, continually bringing our own hearts and our own minds back to the gospel as you have revealed it, seeking to see you and know you as you are, and then proclaiming that news to all those around us. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.